Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Let's open in prayer. Father, we come. We thank you that you have been so gracious, so loving, so merciful to us. And Father, apart from you, we know we can do nothing, nothing of any value. And this morning, as, as we tune in, as we turn our ears to you, we want to hear you through the study of the word. We want to know you in your ways, in your will. So, Lord, we ask that you'd Give us a double portion of grace today that we would be changed, we be transformed. And Lord, wherever we go today, tomorrow, the, the days to come, that we would be your light. The words that we would speak would be full of salt. Because Lord, we know that you've called us to go to go and make disciples, go to impact, to influence those around us, to be your ambassadors and representatives. And Lord, that is our desire. So equip us again this morning and have your way in, in our hearts. And all of God's people said, Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, but I'm going to begin with an illustration. It was some time back in Guidepost, Ronald Pinkerton describes a near accident he had while hang gliding. He had launched his hang glider and been forcefully lifted up 4,200 feet into the air. And as he was descending, he was suddenly hit by a powerful new blast of air that sent his hang glider plummeting toward the ground. He said, I was falling at an alarming rate, trapped in an airborne riptide. I was going to crash, and then I saw him, a red-tailed hawk. He was six feet off my right wingtip, fighting the same gust as I was. I looked down, 300 feet from the ground, still falling, and the trees below seemed like menacing pikes. I looked at the hawk again, and suddenly he banked and flew straight downwind, downwind. If the right air is anywhere, it's, it's upwind. The hawk was committing suicide. 200 feet from nowhere, he thought, entered my mind and followed the hawk. I went against everything I knew about flying, but now all the knowledge was useless. I was at the mercy of the wind. I followed the hawk. One hundred feet. And suddenly the hawk gained altitude. And for a split second, I, I seemed to be surprised and motionless in space. And then a warm surge of air started pushing the glider upward. I was stunned. Nothing I knew as, as a pilot could explain this phenomena. 
but it was true. I was rising. And on that occasion, we, we have similar downdrafts in our lives, reversals in our fortunes, humiliating experiences. We want to lift ourselves up, but God's word, like the red-tailed hawk, tells us to do just the opposite. God's word drives us to dive, to humble ourselves under the hand of God. And if we humble ourselves, God will send a thermal wind that will lift us up. See, it's by humbling ourselves we learn and we understand the importance how to conduct ourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel so that we will stand in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, Paul continues his message in these next four verses really on what spiritual unity is. And we're going to see those keys to spiritual unity today laid out in our text. Let me read our text in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being the same mind, maintaining that same love, united in Spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. See, the unity that the Word so highly exalts is an inward unity. It's not outward. It's internally desired, not externally compelled. It is the spirit-motivated, spirit-empowered bonding of hearts and minds and souls of God's children to each other. See, Paul had counseled the Ephesians to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Spiritual unity is something that we must constantly cultivate and preserve with selfless devotion. The church in Philippi, for the most part, was theologically sound, and they were devoted and moral, zealous and courageous and prayerful and and generous. But they faced the danger of discord. The same problem that every church, every workplace faces. It'll be in chapter 4 of Philippians that we'll see that there's two women in the church at Philippi. But they're having difficulty getting along. And Paul encouraged the Philippians to, to live out that life in, the, in Christ in the, the spirit of living in unity. And that's the key. That's what we're going to see you're going to see that the right motive will produce spiritual unity. Look back again at our text. It's there in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort and love, 
if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Paul is speaking things as if they're rhetorical. He's not looking for an answer. He's saying what it really is. And and many translations and others have all in agreement that Paul's really saying something to this effect. Since there is so much encouragement in Christ, and since his love has such tremendous persuasiveness, and since the Holy Spirit brings us all together in such wonderful, sweet fellowship, and since there is so much tender affection and mercy in Christianity, we should all be able to get along happy in harmony together. See, those who have been born again, who have a real experience with Christ, is what we refer to as true believers, should live in harmony together and love. Now, Paul's speaking clearly, we can see, to the believers. Notice again in that verse, he uses the word in Christ. Another translation might have united with Christ in the NIV, for example. To be in Christ means to be saved. It speaks of that intimate, personal relationship with Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it's always out of this relationship flow all the benefits, all the fruits of salvation, like encouragement, and that comfort and love. In the relationship, naturally, there is unity. You understand how that works when you run into uh, someone in a store, you, you see their mannerism, you recognize there's something different about them. You know they love Christ. You know they want to honor him. Even if if they stumble, you know that desire in them is to honor Christ. You know they're his workmanship. And there's a natural unity. You love them. You pray for them. You forgive them. And you watch them the wonder of God's glory as he forms in them and works in them. It doesn't matter whether the same culture, the same language, if you run into another believer, it is natural. It's not something that we have to work up, muster up, but it's something that we have to do is decide that we're going to love our brother even if there are differences. It's not getting just people together. It's when we do come together, no matter where we are, it is natural. It is out of love. It flows out of being in the Spirit. Well, look with me to the next point I want to call your attention to, really, is that encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement comes from the word parkaleo to come alongside. It's parkaleus. Used 30 times in our text, and always it's 
referred to as comfort and consolation and exhortation. The Apostle John sought believers to obey the prayerful injunction of Christ. This is what he said in John seventeen twenty one. He says that that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us. See, unity that we're talking about, the spiritual unity, is the same unity that Jesus had with the Father. It was a submissiveness unto the Father. It was a desire to do the will of the Father. So when we have this spiritual unity, we also will have that same desire. And we will have that same desire together. It won't be seen in, in warring with other believers. No, because there can be no real joy if we're warring with believers. And we're warring with believers because we fail to obey the command of Christ Jesus. The one who is in perfect unity with the Father. There's another fragment I want to look at. Notice that consolation or comfort in love. If there is any consolation or comfort in love, a better wording could be suggested is comfort from love. A love which produces joy and a love that produces unity. When the believers love Christ, they should. And when they love one another as Christ loved them, they'll experience that comfort. And those around them will experience that comfort or consolation in some translations. Now, it's love, the love of Christ that stirs a person to keep this unity with other believers. Even when there's division, indifference, love covers a multitude of sin, but love leads us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. And natural unity will follow naturally. Now that word love is agapeo love. It's a love that's selfless. It's sacrificial. It is a love of the mind, a love that reasons and of will. It is a love that goes so far that loves a person even if he doesn't deserve to be loved or utterly unworthy of being loved. See, agape love is the love of Christ, the love which he showed when he gave and sacrificed himself while we were in our worst. We don't deserve it. We're totally unworthy of such love. Yet love was demonstrated. Christ loved us despite all that he saw. He set his love upon us. I tried to imagine this, and it's hard to imagine. But imagine the spirit of unity that would exist within a church if every member would let love of Christ flow through them. There would be no bitterness, there'd be no anger, no strife, no no action that would hurt another person whatsoever. 
Yet God set his love upon us. He has poured his love in our hearts. And yet we still continue to walk selfishly through this life, even in tunnel vision, sadly with our own agendas. See, if the person were wrong and deserved punishment, the church members should automatically be willing to sacrifice and give themselves for that person. That we want to lift this person up. We want to restore this person. We love them so much. We don't want to see judgment. We want restoration. We want to see them become everything that God would have them be. Not be angry, not be bitter, not divide, not be unforgiving, but we are to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us. Oh, how sweet that would be if that were true. One day it will be true. Notice again that communion or the fellowship of the Spirit, depending on your text. Again, if there is any fellowship in the Spirit, or as I said earlier, since there is fellowship in the Spirit. See, all believers share in that fellowship of the Spirit. It's that word koinonia. In fact, we're going to do communion afterwards. Koinonia, it's that same thing. Koinonia, when we do communion, is we're having fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering what he has done for us, but also we're doing it together. We're remembering together. We're proclaiming the gospel, the good news, what he's done for us. Well, this koinonia is really the bond of fellowship. It's between the believer and the Holy Spirit. It's where our spirits connect. And it's that genuine submission to him will produce that fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace, long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. They flow out of love, but that love, again, is in the Spirit, is having this fellowship, and they flow natural. Well, let's look at that next fragment. It's that affection and compassion. There's two sides of brotherly compassion seen in the compound word, affection or, or bowels of mercies. That's in the King James. But, but that term affection refers to the inner organs, which is the seat of your emotions where you feel things inside. And the concept of mercies points out the outward. So one is inward and one is outward. You feel it inside and you're moved to action on the outside. Compassion is the opposite of indifference. Where there's no compassion, there can be really no love or joy. You know, it's in the book, of Mark, it, it describes in Jesus had compassion. I love that because every time you see that phrase, you see Jesus in action. Compassion or love moves us to serve one another in love. In fact, in 1 John three sixteen and 17, look up on the screen, it says, 
And we know, love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, he does not love God or abide in him. Now we can say, well, there's physical needs, but sometimes there's emotional needs. One of the greatest needs that I see of a, a, a brother and sometimes is just to feel loved, feel accepted when the enemy is condemning them, when they've fallen, is to love them, lift them up, wash them off with the water of the word, tenderly get them back on that right path, be supportive, encouraging, and prayerful for them. That's what that spirit of unity produces. Well, look with me in verse 2. We're going to see the marks of spiritual unity. Paul begins by saying, make my joy complete. Man, he's longing to see this. He longs for that unity. So he says, make my joy complete by being the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, an intent on one purpose. There's four descriptions uh, of unity are given here in our text. And the first one, as you saw, was it was the same mind. The phrase literally means that you keep on thinking the same thing. The, the same expression is used again for the two sisters in, in chapter four. That they are to have the same mind in the Lord. Being the same mind in the conduct worthy of the gospel. The striving for the faith of the gospel. We have a purpose to live. That we can have that same mind, conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ, ministering to a world that is walking in darkness, not being angry at him, but bringing the truth. Not looking down upon them, but looking up to them and lifting them up to Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that all Christians are to be expected to think and act alike like clones in that sense. Nowhere in the, the word does God teach us that, that we dress the same, look the same, believe every single thing the same. But it does mean the essentials, who Christ is the life that he's called us to live and the way we're to live that life. But it's not important whether a person is baptized backwards or forwards or baptized in this church or that church. The question is, have they been baptized in the Christ? Have they trusted in Christ? Do they believe in him? And is it obvious in their life? Is there a change that we have a mission? Go, go and fulfill the great commission to those that do not know the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus come to seek and save the lost. Jesus come to lay down his life willingly that you and I would see God, know God, know his love, know his mercy, and we're to live our lives in that same way. Well, second thing I want to call your attention to is that same love. Believers must be united in love. 
They must love whom and what God loves, and they must love each other with the same love of God. That, remember, is agape love, a love of the mind, a love of reason. We choose to love. This is always the mark of a true believer. Their love for one another. It's not the, the, the mark of tongues. It's not the mark of giving. Or how we dress is the mark of love. And that love lays itself down for others. Well, the third thing we see here is believers are to be united in spirit. United in spirit. It, the phrase literally means joint souls, bonded one, laminated together. As a chain, one soul must be linked to another. And see ourselves as, as one with one purpose, one goal. No Christian should and can function independently, but rather we must live in harmony with both Christ and other believers, God has put us together. It doesn't matter what the sign on that building says, because the church is the people. When when something marvelous happens, God's moving that church, we should rejoice with those rejoice. And when something horrible happens, we should also grieve with those who are grieving or mourn, the scripture says. That's being united in spirit and fulfilled the Great Commission together. Fourthly, they must be intent on one purpose. Literally, it, it translates thinking constantly of one thing. Boy, as you get older, it, it's hard to think constantly on, on one thing. But this is what he's saying. The one thing is later, it, it, it's going to be explained in more detail as the selfless mind of Christ. It means no longer living for ourselves. It's it's living for Christ, living for the Father. It's living for the hope of heaven. It could be included that the single-minded purpose is really, as, as Paul would talk about, is pressing on toward that goal of the prize, that upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. It's living as a pilgrim in this life with the hope that one day we'll see the Lord face to face. And we want to bring everyone we can to heaven with us. I like what A.T. Robinson claims. The believers should be like clocks that strike at the same moment in, in perfect harmony, perfect unity. See, these are the marks of of spiritual unity. In verses 3 and 4, we see another element is the right means for spiritual unity. The right means for spiritual unity. It, It means do nothing from selfish and empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but notice the interest of others. I remember when I became a believer, 
They were going through the book of Philippians and this grasped me and just shook me that I am to regard another more important than myself. That I'm to live not for myself, but I'm to live for Christ and live for others. And and everything I do, I, I should be concerned, how is it going to affect others? I remember when I, I first became a believer, I, I used to go out at, at happy hour and I would have, I, again, um, these stuffed chilies and I would have something to drink and, and at that point and and I recognized it every time when I left we almost had to carry somebody else because they drank and they got drunk and I recognized God didn't want me to be in this place and just because I was going there it was stumbling others I didn't understand what he was saying completely, but but I I knew I I needed to step back to to love them and and let them go. They were unbelievers, and not to say that having a drink is wrong, but it was wrong for me. God saying, I don't want you in this place. And I stepped back. I said, guys, I'm going to go home. I've got to do this. I just don't feel comfortable here anymore. I, I don't understand why. And the group I used to go with, you know, they quit going there. And the person that we used to have to help carry out ended up quit drinking and ended up going to church. And over a period of time, that person that was going to church became a believer, born again. But this is a work that God does in our hearts. And yet, at the same time, we have to say, when God says this, okay, I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to have my way. It's a choice we make. And the choice we make is really humility. And humility at that time when this is being written was not a sought-after virtue in a a Greco-Roman world. See, the, the way the world is up, but the way in God's kingdom, the way up is down that he might exalt us. See, but Christ made it a unique aspect in his own life, humility. He came from heaven to earth. He became a man, and we'll look more at that next week. He laid aside his, his, his privileges of who he was. While he still remained God, he became the God-man. Well, Christ made it unique, as I said, in his own life and called on his believers to immolate this in their very own lives. I like Warren Worsby states, the humility is a grace that when you know it, you have it, you've lost it. In this passage, Paul views the joy of humility is both negative and and a positive quality. Well, first, let's look at the negative. Believers should not possess the selfish, the competitive spirit. Again, those opening words read, do not or do nothing from selfish and empty conceit. 
Someone has said that empty conceit is, is a disease where strife is the symptom. See, the sin of strife is the, the work of the flesh. It's, it marked the disciples that were Jesus as they argued who was the greatest. And it caused James and John, their mother, to request two thrones to be close to Jesus Christ, exalting themselves, wanting to be in that place instead of taking the lowest position. And that's what God calls you and me. Not to exalt ourselves, but to take that low position just as he did, to immolate his life in our life. Now, that concept for empty conceit or is what we call empty glory. In appearance, it seems to be spiritual, impressive, but inside it's, it, there's no substance. It's, it's kind of like taking a balloon and blowing up, and, and the larger it stretches on the outside, the bigger the emptiness is on the inside. Yeah, that's what happens. The Pharisees had it when they prayed and gave and fasted before men because they were seeking the glory of men. <laughs> All wood, hay, and stubble. But positively, believers should have a high opinion of others. That's the other side of this. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians should have a, a poor self-image. We should just really see ourselves as really we are in Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. It's that we're his workmanship. And he will finish this work in us. They were simply to submit. But our part is to lift up others. And without exalting ourselves. It means choosing a servant's mind, humbling ourselves in order to serve others. It's putting others first. They must not think of themselves more idly than they ought to think, Romans twelve three would say. Or they should recognize that they are what they are by the grace of God. It's, it's God's grace. I like Matthew 20, verses 26 and 27. Let me read. It is not this way among you, for whoever wishes to become great among you shall be the servant, the servant of all. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave. <laughs> Everyone wants a slave, but God says, this is what I've called you to do, to be a servant. I'm a, your servant. I'm here to serve you, to equip you to do the work of the ministry, to bring you into the presence of God, to help you understand and learn to study the Bible, to disciple you. This is what God has called me to, just as he's called me to do this in the same way you are called to begin with your family, your friends around you to serve. And sometimes we're going to get mud in our face. Sometimes we're going to be hurt. But the greatest reward is when we see people walking in God's grace, loving one another as Christ loved them. See, Christ is that perfect example of love and humility 
We see it in John 10, verses 17 through 18. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again, the commandment I received from my Father. Just as Jesus willingly down his life, you and I can willingly lay down our lives in love, in humility, and serve one another. Now, we have the authority. We can take it up if we wish. We can do it our own way if we want. But we will not be walking in love, and we will not be walking in humility. We will not be exalting our brother, our sister. Well, Jesus demonstrated that love when you stop and think about it. He's headed to the cross, if you remember. And prior to that, his, his disciples were kind of bickering. Who's the greatest? Wrangling over words. And then they come to the, 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 the supper, the last supper, that meal. John thirteen four tells us, and Jesus got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, taking, taking a towel, and he, he girded himself. Now, first of all, back in John seventeen eighteen, Jesus was talking about a physical death. Lay it down. There's no greater love than one who laid down his life for a brother, and, and we should be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of seeing someone come into the kingdom. But in, in chapter 13, verse 4, he says and it applies to the terms of service because he gives that demonstration. He lays down his life in service. And he expects us as as believers, as followers, to do the same, to emulate this. In other words, serving others is a type of death to self. It's laying down our own selfish desires. But take it up the towel in order to to serve others humbly and sacrificially. It does not necessarily mean that we should physically die, though we might at some point, for some reason, there should be a willingness. It simply means those serving our fellow humans in the, the midst of all the dirt, all the grime. Sometimes it can be little things, practical things. You're tired, you've been working hard, whatever it is. You're home, the dishes need to be done. Do the dishes and it's maybe going and visiting the homeless when you want to rest, taking a meal to them, helping a widow by mowing her, her lawn, listening to friends pour out their troubles, washing windows for the elderly, whatever it may be. The options really are endless. It's simply whatever is selfless. It's a sacrificial task, a servant, a slave, might do, and I believe should do. The very idea of this sacrificial love is it means it's going to cost you in order to esteem another higher than yourself. This is really the best part, though, that that there's no room when we do this for selfishness. 
It's a natural process. We just die to self. There's no room for empty conceit because we die to ourselves and humbly serve one another in love. And that joy flows out of that. Look at the concern for others in verse 4. Paul's concern was a balance. And that's something that we all need to strive for, balance. Looking to the concerns of others as well as one's own life. See, the admonition was both inclusive and it was individual. It was individual man. The the verb means look. It is the basis on the word scope. We, we need to be watching. We need to be looking, constantly focusing upon the object. And there's two possibilities that could exist. First, the believer should not be looking out only for his own personal interests, kind of thinking or saying, what's in this for me? What do I get out of this? And I think all of us have maybe heard it, even said these things. That That's not what a Christian should ever be seen or thinking it's what we call stinking thinking because it doesn't line up with Christ. Second, a believer should look for the interest of others. Again, that, that word but is very emphatic, showing the constant between selfishness and selflessness. He, he should be asking, what are the needs of my brother? How can I help him? How can I minister to him? What can I do for him? Elsewhere, the apostle wrote, uh, when they're, they're strong, when they are strong, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let everyone please his neighbor for the good to edification. See, this is the heart of the Lord this is how you and I, and this is so important to, to understand how we can walk in this spiritual unity is take these keys for spiritual unity and begin applying them in our lives. See, the way up is down. It's the way of a servant. While the world wants a slave, we choose to lay down our lives and wash people in the midst of a dirty, grimy, filthy, immoral world is not stepping back, yelling, condemning, saying, oh, they'll never believe. Never does the Bible teach us that. He says, go. We need to go. The world needs to know who Jesus Christ is. Would you stand with me as I close in prayer? Father, thank you for a convicting text. Not a text of condemnation but a text that tells us what's right and what's wrong and how to get right, how to stay right. How we can honor you, how we can glorify you, how we can exalt our, our brothers and sisters and how we can see the kingdom being advanced. We truly do want to walk 
with a walk that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. We want to live out the gospel just as you did, Jesus. Thank you for that love and help us to love as you love. In Jesus' name, amen.